0: Hi, I'm Walter Koenig. I performed the role of Chekhov in the original series and the seven Star Trek movies that followed. You are watching Trek Untold.
1: Welcome back to Trek Untold, the Star Trek podcast that goes beyond the stars. I'm your host, Matthew Kaplowitz. It's becoming a rare treat to chat with people who appeared in or worked on the original Star Trek series, and I'm not making that observation just for the sake of being morbid. Let's be real here, it's 2021, and the original Star Trek series will be able to qualify for social security benefits in just another 11 years from now. People who grew up with that show have since moved on to have entire lives, and in many cases have become parents or even grandparents. This year marks the 55th anniversary of the franchise, and that's a pretty epic milestone, especially when you consider that this show has continued to give new episodes throughout almost every decade. It's a number that continues to grow and move forward, and as it does, it means that people from that first series will become harder to find and even harder to speak with. So as those numbers continue to increase, that means people who appeared in or worked on that original series will become more and more scarce. That's why today I am beyond happy to tell you that not only is my guest from the original series, but he's a fan favorite who still enjoys playing his character in fan productions to this day, and that would be Mr. Walter Koenig. Walter was Ensign Pavel Chekhov in the original series and through all seven of the original Star Trek films. He continued to play the role in many fan-made films, including Renegades, Captain Pike, Starship Excelsior, Of Gods and Men, and others. Sci-fi fans will also recognize Walter as Alfred Bester from Babylon 5, but he's also appeared in dozens of other things, including Ironside, Columbo, Moontrap, and many, many more, as well as some roles in films and shorts coming out later this year. He also has a new book out coming from Jacobs Brown Press titled Beaming Up and Getting Off, Life Before and Beyond Star Trek. This book includes parts from his original memoirs combined with updated stories from when that book left off. Today, Walter is 84 years old, and he continues to have an irresistible and unstoppable urge to act and create, and I'm glad to report he is just as vivacious and sharp as ever. The tough challenge for me when talking with someone like Walter is, what do I ask him? Because really, this is a guy who has said it all about Star Trek again and again, and then ten times more. I came in with a huge list of questions, and thankfully, Walter had some ideas of his own that he wanted to discuss. So it was an interesting interview that we conducted because it kind of was more of a bouncing-off session of ideas and concepts, a little bit more so than just me asking a bunch of questions. It was pretty unique and a rather intimate chat that might not have as much Star Trek talk as you'd like, but we do get to see a side of Walter that doesn't necessarily show up quite as much at the conventions. So I hope you guys enjoy this chat today with Walter Koenig, because as for me, I still can't believe I got to talk with the man. And welcome back to Trek Untold. And now the person who's joining us on the other side of the screen, he needs no introduction, but... Don't worry, I already gave him one that's about four minutes long, so trust me, we went down all the credits because there's so many to go through. We are honored today to be joined by Mr. Walter Koenig. Walter, how are you today?
0: I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm here and I'm ready to reply to whatever question you ask, if unless it has to do with the Communist Party and my association.
1: <laughs> we deny all associations with the Communist Party. We'll get that out of the way right now. Okay. So, Walter, you know, we don't really have a ton of things in common, but we have a few. Uh, One of them is that we both grew up in New York City. We're both incredibly handsome. And the other one is that we are both collectors. And I know that you're a big collector of a lot of your merchandise, and in particular, the Star Trek toys, which I'm also a very big fan of. So, uh, I wanted to actually start things off by asking about that. Uh, You know, your first Star Trek figure was in 1993, uh, and that was as part of this classic bridge crew set. So, I'm curious, you know, what you thought about your very first action figure.
0: Well it doesn't look like me <laughs> they're, they're all very flattering uh the ones that i've seen i yeah i i i don't collect star trek me, me, me merchandise i i do collect checkoff figures and i uh my 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 uh, primary source of collecting are comic strip related um uh, merchandise that goes back to 1896 so uh, I built a second floor on my uh, house for my collection, which was very extravagant of me and very tolerant of my wife. None of them look uh, li- like me. And my, 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 and my face in particular, I think, uh, is hard to replicate in, in three-dimensional toy because it's, there's nothing particularly distinguishing about it. Leonard Nimoy's face—you know—everybody gets part of it right anyway because it's so distinguished, distinguishable. Um, but yeah, but regardless of whether it looks like me or not, I—what's his name? Reeves, the
1: actor. Um, oh, Keanu Reeves. Yeah, Keanu Reeves.
0: Yeah, they look more like Keanu Reeves than they do like me.
1: It's funny because, you know, I also collect a lot of the pre-production toys. So these are things that never got made or before they're manufactured. And right. I actually have a Chekhov pre-production. It's called the test shot. So that's when they are basically testing the molds to make sure they work and they function correctly. And uh, the detail on that is like gorgeous. I wish I could show it to you, but it's it's so tiny. <laughs> but yeah. it's, you know, as these things get made and as they get manufactured, you just lose all that detail in the paint. It's unfortunate because the one I have, it looks like it looks exactly like you from the 60s. It's beautiful. Well, you have it anyway. <laughs> in of hands. So, yeah, Jacobs Brown Press, uh, they're the reason why we're chatting today, because they just released your updated memoirs towards the end of last year, Beaming Up and Getting Off. Wonderful title, by the way. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's such a meaty, meaty book. There's so much substance in this book. So I wonder, I mean, was anything even left on the cutting room floor by the time you were done?
0: No, they were very good about that. Uh, you know, it, it was originally published in 1997, I think, in 98. And and then it was called um, uh, a neurotics guide of the a neurotics guide to the universe or something like that. And this is this is a, a second edition, which includes an additional twenty years of my life. The since, since that one ended in the while I was participating in Babylon Five, the fourth season of Babylon Five. This one picks up there. And goes forward and backward, uh, covering um, experiences and feelings and et all that I uh, omitted for one reason or another from the first volume.
1: And you know, I learned a lot of things about you from this book. And you have such vivid memories of things that happened so many years ago. That's
0: what my memory is. My memory is with things that happened at least 30 or 40 years ago. Uh, it's much harder um, recalling. Things that uh, are more recent. I guess, I guess that's a classic first stage of dementia or something. Um, but I'm de- I'm definitely a cl- an example of, of that kind of personality. Yeah. So actually, the first the the, the first two hundred and some pages were very easy to recall. It was the last hundred pages that um, I I had to labor over.
1: And you're writing about some really important events in your life. Some of them are happy. Some are sad. And I imagine that's got to be just a very taxing thing to do, both mentally and emotional. To have to just relive a lot of those moments. And how did you get through that process?
0: Well, you know, the most uh, the most uh, difficult was the, the passing of my son. And I, I decided that I would deal with it in uh, three quarters of a page. And then not, and uh, not uh, confronted again. I, it's just too, just too painful. So I, I acknowledge it, and then I uh, go on with the rest of my life.
1: I mean, there's a lot of really great stories. There's a lot of happiness, a lot of tragedy, a lot of sadness. But that's kind of just life itself, isn't it?
0: Yeah, that's exactly like life itself. It's just, it's just how, you, how you approach it, what point of view you take. I tried as best I could not to be self-pitying and, and not to be angry uh, at people you know, who might have done me an injustice,
1: just to try to make the book fun. One of the parts I really enjoyed reading about was your relationship that you had later in life with Mark Leonard, Uh, and you guys did The Boys in Autumn, which I knew nothing about, so I went to look it up, I learned more about the play. Uh, Unfortunately, I I can't find any clips anywhere of it, but it sounds like a really wonderful show that you did together, Uh, and I'd love to hear a little bit more about your relationship with him on stage and off stage.
0: Yeah, well, um, the first time I met Mark was not at the studio, I, I met him somewhere else, I don't know where it was. Um we didn't work together uh, on Star Trek. He was in episodes and scenes that I wasn't involved in, but um, he knew my love of theater and that I wanted to perform, continue to perform on stage. And he is a definitely a stage bred uh, actor. Extremely, extremely good. I, I got good reviews. He got great reviews. <laughs> um the the play that you're referring to is um it's uh about tom sawyer and huckleberry finn meeting again like 40 years later each has their own secret and the evol- evolving story is getting to the point where they admit to each other the dark side of their life and um we did it in a small theater in LA to standing room only, literally standing room only audiences. And we had to uh, uh, extend our run. Then we took it, uh, we took it on the road, uh, which was particularly uh, um, I don't know, courageous, difficult, because uh, there's, a, there's a Model T Ford uh, that uh, is involved in the, in the, in the play. And, and you really need to see it on stage unless you're, you're gonna cheat the audience completely. So we built one, we built one out of wood. It was, it was beautiful. I had it in my patio for years until I just fell apart. But we were able to wheel it onto the stage un, unseen. But when we took it on the road uh, in in Denver, we we did the play to, to good effect and you know re, um, resounding applause. But we had a one a two dimensional cardboard out of, of, of the of the car, which you know affects the overall sense of um, of uh, authenticity. Uh, nevertheless. Uh, we did it there, and we did it in Pennsylvania. We did it in two venues in Pennsylvania. One had a seating capacity of about 300, and the other had a seating capacity of close to 2,000. Uh, so that it was uh, quite strange. We did it. Where we ha- where we did it in the round. Where it was dimensional, and we did it when we had a proscenium, depending on the, the stage um, structure. Um, we did it at a college in in. Louisiana, and it was an amazing results. Hundreds of college students, and they just were just were amazing. They were so good and so appreciative. In any event, so we did it eight, eight or nine, ten places on the road, and we had this extended run at the small theater in LA. And then we came back to LA and we did it in a 400 seat, very professional theater in, in, in a city called Thousand Oaks. And then we did it in a couple of other places in Los Angeles. Yeah, we did it quite a bit. We had a great time. We were going to go to uh, we were going to go to Scotland to the to the um, the big festival they have there every year. I can't think what it's called offhand. You you may know it. Then even he, uh, um, he lived in Mark lived lived in in two locations. He lived in L.A. and he also lived uh, in on the East Coast. And in between uh, our performances and, and the rest of his life, he went back to, LA, uh, to New York and didn't return. And I kept hearing uh, that he had pneumonia. He was had one uh, illness or another, but not very, not very, loo- not very c- clear about ex- precisely what was the problem. I guess it was his choice not to, to make it public. And it turned out that he had cancer. And that he did not survive the cancer, and we canceled the performance in Scotland. Um, I lost an, an extraordinarily gifted actor and a good friend who,
2: whose
0: <laughs> whose relationship with me was a bit um, volatile but but I always considered him a good friend and and I very much expressed his it respected his work
1: he did a lot of beautiful work over the years just had such an amazing career uh, on, on tv and film and, and of course on stage as well so uh you know it sounds like just a really wonderful time though you got to spend that type of quality time with him and performing with him too
0: yeah we did three plays together i mean we boys in autumn was just the last one we did one at the actor studio in los angeles can't remember it, name of it but it was just the two of us and we did another play that. um called cool, upstairs downstairs i think that's what it was called maybe not no that, that was it was a television series but it was an english comedy and um, my, my wife played the third part in that we did we did that in los angeles so yeah we worked together a significant amount of time
1: now of course we have to jump into some star trek talk here because i know it's what my listeners want to hear about and uh, i know you've at this point you've said it so many times so i've been trying to think you know what i could dare to ask you about it would be something different and unique and we'll see what we can find as we go along here but uh you know, I, I just rewatched yesterday an episode called specter of a gun and uh in particular i want to ask you about that one because you got to spend a lot of time smooching bonnie beecher in that one that must have been a good time to film
0: yeah the the sidebar to that story is that i knew his bo- i knew her boyfriend in new york years before i met her and if you read my book you'll find out that we pulled off a, a caper together for which we did not go to jail. We probably should have. Uh, I'm not going to go any further into that. I think, um, I think the, uh, something has, has expired.
1: On uh, the statute
0: of limitations? Statute of limitations, yes. So we, we, we they can't put us in jail anymore. But it's, a, <laughs> it's an interesting story. So I knew him, it's, it's a cute, it's a crazy world. I knew him long before I, I met Bonnie. And she brought it up that uh, her boyfriend says hello, and uh, he didn't come. He didn't come visit the set. Just as well, we we did a lot of smooching. No, we just did smooching for the scene, uh, but it was fun. I loved uh, performing Inspector. The gun. I got the girl. I got killed. Uh, I I went down on down to the planet. I was involved in the action. It was a good episode. And actually, it was supposed to be a forerunner of the kind of involvement I would have in the third year. The intention was to, to make Chekhov more uh, a part of the, uh, the away team, uh, the, the team that went uh, on the adventures on the various planets. Uh, so that was written in the second year, but, but to be formed in the third year, and was supposed to represent, as I say, Chekhov's involvement in the series at that point, because the mail had been very good. I had gotten a lot of mail from little kids, and uh, but then we discovered during that summer between, um, between the, or or that spring between the second and third season that the third season was going to be our last season. When that happened, all the plans to to make Chekhov more involved in the story sort of went by the side. And um, he went back to I.I. Captain as most of his most of his, uh, most of his witty uh, part.
1: I mean, that's something that's talked about a lot in the book: is your desire to have Chekhov be a much more fully fleshed character. Because, like you said, I mean, for the most part, he's just going I.I. Captain, fire torpedoes, and you wanted right. to make him into a more fully fleshed out character. As and:
0: I'm, uh, sure, I'm sure most actors who do not play leads, we all want to do more work. You know, we all want to be more involved. Um, I, I certainly enjoyed being in Star Trek, and I enjoyed my participation as Chekhov. Uh, but you know, I've got an ego. I, I don't think of myself as as a supporting player, as a as a uh, as a bit player. I don't think of myself in those terms. Although, I, I, if you look at the work I did on Star Trek, you might catalog me in in that in that particular uh, um uh, that that kind of participation
1: on the show i mean i would never say that you had an ego i mean really looking through the book a big part of this story is is you trying to find a way to get yourself more out there because you know you had all this time being frustrated as the part of Chekhov. you wanted to become so much more Uh, and i'm curious you know was that like part of the frustration over the years with the direction of the character and how it was used i mean is that what kind of spilled into some of your choices later on in life too for the other Star Trek movies, or just other roles in general.
0: Well, first of all, when it, when it came to Star Trek, I, you know, I was the new kid on the block. I came out in the second season, and I never felt totally, um, totally a member of the cast. Um, some of that had to do with the the way the supporting actors were treated. Um, we weren't treated badly. Nobody yelled at us. Uh, but there was there was a hierarchy of participation, and Bill Leonard and the Forest got the you know the, the most to do, and as they were the stars, that was certainly the the way things worked in those days. I think now, uh, in the last 10, 20 years, if you're if you're a regular on a show, there is more recognition. Given to your to your involvement, and uh, you you feel more like members of the family. Um, everybody was okay, you know. N- nobody was difficult to work with. Um, well, not much anyway. Uh, got along great with the forest and Leonard, and with George, Nichelle, the forest. I said that george then you know that that pretty much covers all the people i got along well with
1: <laughs> yeah i mean you know this is one of the, the big things you cover in the book is your relationship with william shatner and you know, i didn't plan on asking so quickly on here i know right surprise i just want to let you know too you know on this show we talked to a lot of other actors who appeared in the original series a lot of character actors a lot of the guest actors and many of them who worked with shatner had mixed reactions and one of the things that you talk about in the book a few times was about basically how a Steam would call for a two shot, but somehow it ended up becoming a one shot with Shatner. <laughs> yeah. And so many of the guests we spoke to had that exact same problem, where they'd say, "Oh, just you know, turn your head this way," and suddenly the weight of the camera is all on Shatner.
0: Yeah, yeah, you know. But I'm I'm 84 now, and I'm trying to put all those feelings behind. I'm just trying to live out whatever's left, uh, and with some sense of tranquility. I can't I don't succeed all the time when I'm asked at conventions something very specific about bill i i tend to be candid about the relationship but i I really i really don't want to dwell on it anymore i mean he's almost 90 for god's sakes and as robust as he is he's not here to to debate me and to argue his his feelings so i feel it's 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 not fair really to only uh to only uh, discuss my side of things. So uh, at this late stage in my life, I'm trying to take a more benign attitude towards everything.
1: I I imagine over the years at conventions, this is probably like the thing that everybody always wants to ask you. So I'm curious, you know, is there a question that you've always wanted someone at a convention to ask you that no one ever has?
0: No, there are some questions that I'm glad people didn't (laughs) ask But, you know, the fans are terrific. They've always been terrific. I bristle I when I hear about the uh, bizarre behavior of fans and how they're geeks and Trekkies and, and all these things that are, are said in a negative way. Uh, fans are very bright. They're very uh, conscious, so politically conscious, uh, most of them are very progressive, I think, and uh, uh, in, in in philosophically. We do have, a, I think there is a, a, a change in fandom, and that much, has much to do with the expansion to motion pictures. Because in order to to do motion pictures and to make money in a um, venue that is um, f- far... Um, more expensive to operate in, you need to, uh, you need to, uh, um, you, you, you need to appeal to uh, a, a wider base, uh, because the wider base are, are made of people who want the action adventure, who want the, uh, the pyrotechnics, who, uh, <clears throat> who want to be entertained uh, viscerally, as, a, as, a, as opposed to uh, socially or intellectually. And so your stories get flattened a little bit. Uh, they're, they're still fun. There's still important things to say. I think we spoke very um, very poignantly about uh, the extinction of, 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 race, of breeds, of species in, in our story about the whales. Um, we 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 we, we uh, star trek six was very socio political um so but your audience becomes more in in involved uh in in the spectacular and as a consequence something sacrifice is sacrificed and generally it's it's uh in the, the the topical issues that we were able to uh we were able to engage in when we did the series to, I think a greater degree. And because as a, and as another consequence, our audience was more tuned in philosophically and they were looking for stories that that had to do with issues that were important to all of us. And, you know, I always, I always maintain and believe that despite or in addition or Beyond the storytelling on Star Trek is that opening shot of seven people on the bridge um, who are diverse in belief, in, in ethnicity, in race. Uh, and those people really get along together. They have each other's backs. And I think that's that's the most important comment uh, Gene Roddenberry made and he intended to make. Having an African American and a Japanese American, a, a someone from a, a totally different species, to someone who was determined to be the, the leader, <laughs> uh, a Russian, a Russian American. So we had that, and that was there every episode, and that was the, the message that we were we were hitting on, even when we didn't, you know, articulate it uh, uh, verbally. That visual was was very, very important. And it said it will be a time uh, when all races, creeds, ethnicities, cultures, uh, nationalities can get along together, can not only get along, but care for each other. And where humanity uh, and other species, if it comes to that, um, can all claim um, the right to this world and be proud of their contribution to it and be respected for it. So that's what Star Trek said in in, in just the, that diversity and 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 also in, in, in many of its stories.
1: You know, what's interesting about it is a lot of those topics that you covered back in the original series are still relevant today. And the way I've always kind of seen it is that, you know, the issues are still the same. They just become more complicated here in 2021. Right, and, you yeah. know, that's what's kind of, I feel like caused uh, a split among the fandom because you've got one side that is more progressive leaning, one side that's more conservative leaning and they kind of want their stories a certain way. So, you yeah. know, I'm I'm glad to see that you're conscious of this kind of change in the fandom.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So uh, I'm not sure that the, the, the latest generation of fans are as... Um, I don't know. I'm guessing here. Maybe not as emotionally affected or uh, or involved with with our cast. I can't speak for the other casts of Star Trek. All who had very very strong followings. But I think entertainment uh, supersedes everything um, on the on the large screen, and uh, there is perhaps less thinking involved and more. Just re- reacting emotionally and 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 enjoying the the pleasure of high technology.
3: Trek Untold will return momentarily. Trek Untold is brought to you by Triple Fiction Productions. If you are a Star Trek cosplayer looking for props or toy collector looking to spice up your shelves, Triple Fiction Productions has you covered. Triple Fiction Productions produces affordable and unique 3D printed Trek-inspired products from the original series, Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Enterprise, and the movies. You can expect the same amount of care and attention to detail in any of the items in their catalog, whether it's a prop replica for use in a fan film, or part of a cosplay, or accessories and playsets for figures from Playmates, Migos, or Diamond Select own your very own tricorder or phaser rifle with working lights, the bridge of the Enterprise E for your Playmates figures, or any other item from countless species and ships from the Star Trek universe. All products are 3D printed in the USA and are constantly evolving and improving based on fan feedback. To learn more about their products, visit them at triple-fictionproductions.net or on Facebook at facebook.com slash triplefictionproductions. Triple Fiction Productions, taking Star Trek where no 3D printer has gone before.
2: Hi, I'm Armand Shimmerman.
3: And I'm Kitty Swink.
2: 17 years ago, I was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. I didn't know it at the time, but I had a 4% chance of surviving five years. As her husband, I was very scared. But he never let me see that. You are a rock. Thank you. Thank you. Pancreatic cancer is the third leading cause of cancer-related deaths in the United States, with a five-year survival rate of just 10%. We want it to be much higher. Much higher. It's 6% better when I was diagnosed, but not high enough. More than 60,000 Americans are estimated to be diagnosed with pancreatic cancer in 2021, and more than 48,000 will die from the disease. Because symptoms are often vague, it can be hard to detect. Like the rest of the world, the Star Trek universe has been struck repeatedly by pancreatic cancer. Not only those of us that work on the show, but our fans around the world as well. It is why we came together with so many others to work with the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network, the leading patient advocates committed to fighting the world's toughest cancer. PanCan is working hard to create better outcomes for this devastating disease through its groundbreaking research and early detection and better treatment options. Pancan drives progress by funding life-saving research, providing personalized patient services, and creating a community of supporters and volunteers who will stop at nothing to create a world in which all pancreatic cancer patients will thrive. You can help support their important mission by donating at Pancan.org today. We donated. Won't you do so too? Please,
1: make it so.
3: We now return to Trek Untold.
1: So I wanted to ask you, Walter, about something that, again, I'm sure you've spoken about this in depth, but I want to hear it just straight from your mouth today, too, and that's about Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, and you, you do mention this, of course, in the book as well, so I urge folks to pick up the book and read it for themselves, but the story I'm getting at is that scene you have with Ricardo Montalban where he recognizes Chekhov somehow, and uh, you talk all about that, so I'd just love to hear your take, uh, if you could kind of tell us the story about Star Trek II and the Khan-Chekhov relationship that shouldn't be.
0: Well, you know, uh, I, first of all, Ricardo was a wonderful guy to work with. I mean, he had uh, been a movie star. He was a you know leading man. He he had a huge history of work. One story that is perhaps a little bit beside the point, but not entirely. Uh, Nick, Nick, this was Nick Meyer's direct, first directing job with us, and uh, he came to it very, very professionally and it just assumed that as director, he uh, was ultimately in charge the way uh, any, uh, any director should feel, but ne- and certainly television directors never feel that way because there's always the lead, the leading characters who have the the, the final say in the portrayal of, their, of the characters they are playing. Because they, the, the directors are there for a week, the leading actors are there forever. Well, it, it, it actually extends to supporting actors, too. Never got a, a, a note, I think, from any of the directors who came on the TV series. So we're, we're starting to rehearse uh, uh, The Wrath of Khan, and uh, Nick, uh, Nick Meyer watched us for a little bit and then asked us to retire to his dressing room for a, for a table talk about what we're doing. Innocent as to the hierarchy of things, and we're all sitting there, and he says, uh, "Ricardo, now in this scene, you're a little bit, you're a little bit, a little, it's a little over the top." And I went to myself, "Oh my God, here it comes, here it comes! He's going to get crushed, he's going to be crucified by, by uh, Ricardo Montalban." And I looked at Montalban to Ricardo, and he goes, "Ah." I see what you mean. Holy cow. I never expected that. Not on our set. Not with, well, not on our set. (laughs) You get the point. Um, So uh, it was, he was delightful. No ego. I mean, he was bigger than life, but it was, it called for it. And what was wonderful was his casting was so strong. He was such a a, a prominent, uh, dominating figure that he was a great match for our antagonist. What you want in any screenplay, in any story, is that the protagonist, that the antagonist is a match for the protagonist. Otherwise, you know who's going to win in the end, and you don't want to know entirely who's going to win. Or if if you know that Captain Herger is, is ultimately going to be successful. You wanna know that he was in a fight and Ricardo presented that. He was such a powerful presence uh, on the screen. So it made the whole story it and gave it, fr- it gave it friction and uh, this immovable object and unstoppable force kind of thing, which is very important for st- storytelling. And at the same time, He wasn't a monster. He didn't have six tentacles. You know, he was a human being. He was a human being who had, who had a sense of vengeance and revenge. And in some, we have all known that in some small way, unless we've been born to be a priest or something or a religious figure. Uh, In any case. So I thought the casting was brilliant. I thought he was, his portrayal was great. I thought, The way they used him in the story was great. And then, you know, the whole thing with Kirk's ex-wife, lover, and their son, all of that was really, really very engaging and and made watching the film uh, a a great great event. And, of course, Chekhov did have a few things to say. Now, regarding, and I see, I remember, which is really amazing, regarding how, why, it played out the way it did with uh, Khan saying oh yes i remember you you I remember he didn't remember me because i wasn't in this series when he made his first appearance but of course he wouldn't he wouldn't have remembered that in any case you know he, he was an actor reciting words committing committing them to memory and and, and, and trusting that he hadn't had me before um, i knew it from the get-go. I knew it before the, the script was, uh, was um, shown to any of the cast. In any case, I was given the script to read before most of the actors. I had a friend on the inside about got the script and he gave it to me to read. So I read this early version of the script, Spock dies in the second act. That's preposterous. You know, you, you can't take one of the icons of the show and kill him off you know, as if it was just another you know, supporting character. And I called up Harve Bennett and I told him, you can't do it. He thought I was calling about lobbying for more to do with my character. That might may, may have been in the back of my mind, but I never brought it up. And NBC said, I don't talk to actors. And I said, I'm not calling you as an actor. I'm calling you as a, somebody who's examined the story structure and you can't kill Spock in the second act. I said, I'm, but I'm, I'm sure you've already been told that. He said, no, and I was I was blown away. I couldn't believe that you, anybody would do that. So he was st- impressed enough to ask me to do a Trekkie run on the entire story. See, I'm getting to it, um, and I read it, and there were uh, some little nagging things that uh, were inconsistent. Some dialogue that was inconsistent with the way we would we would say things. And, but at the same time I recognized the fact that Spock had never met Chekhov. So I had the, I had the opportunity to be a Boy Scout and a, and a total moron and tell him that, or just ignore it, you know. Da, da, da. So I ignored it. I mean, I did mention a dialogue that would not be said. Uh, I did mention small things, but I, um, I uh, ignored the fact that that was inconsistent with what we had already established and uh, nobody else mentioned it. So um, we went ahead and and uh, shot it that way, uh, which was great because it gave me more to do. Uh, I knew there would be some backlash, um, but I made it into kind of a joke when people would ask me and they would ask me Everybody at every at every convention, there would be somebody who would jump up, so proud of, of knowing this detail was incorrect that Chekhov did not meet Khan before. That um, I decided to make a joke out of it, and I did. I I said, I said Chekhov was on the on the on the Enterprise during during the series. He was just working on the third deck behind the boiler room and was suddenly taken with uh, and needed uh, to uh, uh, attend the the bathroom facilities and was so sick that he was there for a long time. And when the door and and Khan in the the meantime was indeed uh, in distress, in urinary distress, (laughs) and was pounding on the door until finally pounding on the door finally I let him in and and he said uh, you I will never forget so I just incorporated that dialogue from the movie into my story and I got got a laugh and everybody sort of let it go you
1: know? well I can definitely appreciate that I'd probably be doing the same thing in the bathroom the entire time so yeah <laughs> so one of my guilty pleasures in the Star Trek fandom is I'm a big fan of the animated series And uh, reading the book, I found out why Chekhov didn't show up in the cartoon. And, uh, you know, I I knew that you had written that episode, The Infinite Vulcan. And I loved hearing you talk a little bit about that and the impetus to do writing for that episode. Uh, But so in particular, I'd love to hear uh, a little bit about you working with Dorothy Fontana and what she kind of taught you for your writing that you continue to use today with what you write.
0: Well, Dorothy was great. Uh, You know, when I first met her, I thought she was very distant and very standoffish. Uh, You know, that's the thing that we we sometimes confuse uh, shyness with, uh, uh, what's the word, not standoff. there's a better word than standoffish, but I can't think of it. And I made that mistake, I thought she was just very much uh, emotionally distant, and I didn't realize that she was actually rather shy. Uh, And once I got to know her better, um, we became friends. And we were great friends, but we became friends. And she respected me and my work, uh, which is always a good start. And um, I certainly respected her. In fact, when I did that um, a semi-professional episode um, about, about Chekhov growing old, I uh, recommended that she write it. I, I told these folks that, that she should write it. And she did. And it was was fun, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. And she, and she, uh, I think, had a pretty good time. Uh, and she, and she was my, which I didn't know at the time, my evidently my biggest supporter on the Infinite Vulcan. I read about another book about animation, about Star Trek animation, and lo and behold, there she is talking about the Infinite Vulcan as being one of her favorite episodes, which I was totally amazed by. You can look it up. It's true. I swear it is. Um, uh, in any case, uh, I, uh, it's very sad. Her passing was very sad because she was a good person, a delightful human being. Uh, she had her head in the right place. Um, she had a very loving husband. Um, and she c- c- continued to work all through the years, which uh, I certainly uh, rejoiced. In that
1: and on the topic of writers, also another one who I always love hearing stories about is Harlan Ellison. <laughs> How did I know? You, you mouthed I? it somehow. You, you immediately knew. That's amazing. You're you're psychic. <laughs>
0: yeah, I met Harlan, uh, and if you. It, it's I had no idea that times had changed so much that he's no longer a household word. You know, I I I, I didn't know that. In fact, I introduced him at a party for George and Brad. After their wedding, and I said, "And Harlan Ellison," and he got a, um, a not the most enthusiastic response, not a negative one, but there was obvious there were obviously people who didn't know who he was, and he and he rebuked me gently, the only time gently that he probably <laughs> rebuked me uh, for not taking the time to uh, give some of his history. And I said, "Well, everybody knows who you are, Harlan. Everybody does." things back in the 60s and the 70s he was a star you know he was in, in he was uh, invited to all the conventions and he was extraordinarily witty and wry and articulate and i didn't know that times had changed at all and that um, he had uh, fallen uh, under the curse of changing times and anonymity which uh uh accompanies such things, um, well, you know, although, you know, although we all experience it. I told jokes 30 years ago that you know uh, reflected where we were and got big laughs. And then I told those same jokes 15 years ago and got dead silence. And I, I realized, uh-oh, can't talk about the movie Deep Throat. Nobody knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> Etc. Uh, Etc. Cetera, et cetera. So, um yeah, claimation. You know, I, I I told a story which was true about about uh, I i had told George. George had been. We were trying to determine, uh, or the studio was trying to determine what Star Trek six was going to be about, and uh, there was there was a lot of heated uh, heated discussion about it, and. um uh, and George was out of town when, when the decision, well, it actually hadn't been made, but he came back and he called me and said, well, what's happened? Uh, what's going to be Star Trek VI? And I said, they're going to do it in Claymation. Now, when I saw that, told that story 20 years ago, I got a big laugh. I told that story 10 years ago. Nobody knew what the hell Claymation was. <laughs> so I, I, had to, I learned that you know, I can't do that anymore. I can't do that anymore. And the times they are changing. And you know, there, there was uh, next generation, and there was Voyager, and there was these all these other shows, which were more appropriate to discuss because the, the fans were were, were fresher. Uh, the shows the shows were fresher. This, the fans knew them better. i I've, I've learned over time that my audience that recognizes me on the street has got to be fifty years old. You know, they can't be forty and thirty anymore, um, because Star Trek is not that omniscient. I'm not omnipresent as it as it was uh, in my
1: day. Well, I can tell you, Walter. If I saw you in the street, I would run over to you and be like, "Please sign anything." I would just rip off my shirt and just say, "Sign my chest" or something. Are you sure? <laughs> I think so. <laughs> okay. Now you've given away the secrets. Now I definitely know.
0: <laughs> no, I've, i am I've, I've. I've uh... I've surrendered to the times, and when I make appearances now, I don't wear—I don't wear a hat anymore. <laughs> do, my God, he's
1: bald. Yeah. I'm also glad you brought up that Star Trek Six story. I love that in the book too. That's like one of the most hilarious things. I know what claymation is. I'd love to have seen Star Trek Six and claymation. Um, sure. But you know, one of the things that's in your book is actually uh, your—I uh, think it was your step outline for Star Trek Six. And I'm, I'm not going to talk about that because I want people to read the book and read that part of it. But I do want to talk about uh, a letter that you sent to the producer Ralph Winters. About an idea for the for the, how you wanted the film to end, I thought this was brilliant. I never heard it before. And your original concept was that you believed that Kirk should actually have died at the end of Star Trek VI. I love to hear that.
0: That, that wasn't wishful thinking. That was just a, <laughs> it was, it was storytelling.
1: Yeah. And I really thought that you know,
0: just as I thought thought that the series was the end of everything. You know, goodbye. Was, here's your hat. What are you going to do for the rest of your life? I certainly thought that way after Star Trek One. I mean, I had to be woken a couple of times during that film. Uh, Star Trek II, I, I thought was great and, rec- and definitely cried out for it, a Star Trek III. Star Trek III, I thought was okay. It's the B-side of a 45 uh, you know, RPM uh, record. Uh, Star Trek IV was sensational. I loved it. I thought everybody was wonderful. And I had a good part. So I knew there had to be a five. Five, I thought, was just another movie. You know, without an ending. In fact, in fact, I think there's a thesis to be written about the the, the, uh, the um, ah great the, uh, the, the 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 commonality uh, of failure between Star Trek One and Star Trek Five. I think you could you could write a really interesting story about why what the similarities were in in their failure. Not the least of which was the um, the um, the the failure of the uh, the special effects and how that was instrumental in in hurting the story, so and then okay so there was five, but I I knew that um, that there was there there, were, there was two sides. that our new producer Harv Bennett, who had been with us since two, definitely wanted to get rid of us. They wanted the new story, a Star Trek Academy story. But there were forces behind the scenes who said, felt that there had to be one more Star Trek with the with the original cast. So I felt fairly confident. No, I didn't feel confident. I never feel confident. Uh, I didn't know whether we were going to do Star Trek six or not. And there we did. We did, and uh, it was a good movie. Um, I wasn't very happy, and I let that be known. Uh, I mean, I had fight. It's terrible, terribly juvenile on my part. But I had arguments with Leonard Nimoy of all people, and Jimmy Dewan and Nichelle, um, and Harve Bennett, um, because I thought Star Trek is the end. We're not going to do anymore. We're never going to be seen again. You got to give these supporting actors a a moment. You got to give them the time to to expand, to develop, to become human beings, to be not simply story um, uh, people who are are processing the story, but who they are, uh, uh, what makes them tick. We never had that. We never had the pronoun I, you know, I think, I believe. It was kept in. Out there, there is something that you should reflect upon, ponder, and make a very important decision. <laughs> I mean, that's what it became. and was always. And people say, well, you know, you were you're, you're, you're supposed to be a supporting character. I know, but when you're with something that long, 1967 to, to I think, the mid-'80s or something, we, we were involved in Star Trek. You've got to make those characters human to, to make them – totally dimensional at some point, for at least one minute. And so uh, I was an unhappy camper during Star Trek VI. I, I knew it was a good film. I, I wasn't able to, to appreciate it as much as I, I might have. Who knew that, that that wasn't the end of, well, it wasn't for me, the end of Star Trek. And, and so people say, well, you must have been desperate to go ahead and do these semi-professional uh, Star, Star Trek stories. No, I'm still trying to get this character to make, to make him live, to make him somebody who you, who knew, you knew what he was thinking and, and what he cared about, you know, not simply an expository character who was there to, to help uh, uh, articulate the, the plot, but
1: not to tell you what he thought about the plot. Anyway, that's my soapbox. I'm glad you also mentioned that too, because that's again, kind of the big topic in the book is trying to get respect, not just for Chekhov, but for Walter Koenig and for what Walter Koenig does and what he can do. Uh, And so, you know, and that's why I asked about actually Boys of Autumn, because, you know, that's like where you took the opportunity onto yourself to make things happen. Uh, So, you know, I think that's a pretty important thing. That's a pretty big part of what your life has been is just making sure that uh, you get the respect that you deserve.
0: Yeah. As a matter of fact, I've I've overdone it on a couple of occasions. I don't think I overdid it on Star Trek because I didn't. I wasn't one of the people who went running to Roddenberry's office after shooting and said, "You got to do this with my character." I found out from reading everybody else's books that they did that. I didn't. You know, I just I just stewed in my own juices and um, kept it pretty much to myself. But when I, and this is way beyond beside the point. And I'm I'm amazed that I had the, uh, the gonads to <laughs> to do this. Uh, but the second year at the Neighborhood Playhouse, my, the drama school I attended, was the, the time to let the world know uh, about what talents you do or do not have. But, but, because second year we opened up our production to the uh, to the public, yeah. and we had showcase productions where casting directors and directors were allowed to uh, come watch us. And um, uh, we were doing The Crucible, which is a brilliant play um, by Arthur Miller. And they posted the cast uh, on the front door. And I saw that I had a very small part. <laughs> and, you know, there, there are a lot of small parts and only a very few large parts. and. There wasn't really a reason why I should take umbrage, I mean, I'm a student, for God's sakes, you know, and I'm not, I'm not a leading man, and I, I can't make, I can't make those kind of decisions. But I, I hung out outside, hovered rather than hang, hung out, hovered outside the, the door until the, the director, who was also the artistic head of the head of this school, came, and then I yelled at. him and told him that I, I deserved a better part than that. I don't know where I, how I got that. It came out of fear. I came that if I didn't have a big part nobody would ever cast me and nobody none of the the public who were involved in the, in the profession would ever cast me in anything good. I mean that was my that was my paranoia um and lack of ego or weak ego. In any case he was furious with me. He's furious with me and took an opportunity uh, during uh, the, I, I ended up playing the small part, opposite Jessica Walters, she was my wife. Um, um, but uh, there was a moment when I was elapsed because I, I thought we were we were taking a break and I was downstairs answering a phone and came back up to find him screaming at me about what a prima donna I was and how I was trying to undermine the production in the very be- which, very beginning, which is not true, because once I ex- once I knew I wasn't going to play the lead, I wanted to do the best job I could. There's no point in biting my nose to spite my face, you know. Um, and I had pride, and I was a professional. Uh, but he he just lit into me, uh, and um, but I I always I guess I guess I carry that with me. I mean, there were times when I I, I totally acknowledged and understood that I was not going to be the focus of attention. And I accepted that. Um, In other other stage work, uh, certainly on the screen, I I did several very small roles. I played one scene role in Untouchables, another one in Combat. Um, I I got it, I got it. You know, I knew what was going on. I was new, I was uh, 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 relatively young. So, I'm making way too much out of this, but, um, but uh, yeah, I, ultimately Star Trek VI bothered me so much because each of us, and I was really thinking about Scotty and Uhura and, and Sulu, that each of us really deserved a very specific very uh, caring moment by the, by the writing team didn't get it. So uh, I I wasn't happy.
1: Yeah. You know, I mean, again, it's it kind of goes back to that, that major theme I'm, I'm looking at here when I read the book and that's, you didn't want to be just pigeonholed as Chekhov for your entire life. You wanted to be Walter Koenig, the actor.
3: Yeah. And
1: uh, you know, I mean, that's something that you continue to struggle with this day. And, you know, I actually want to bring up a role you just recently had. And that was in the short film, who is Martin Danzig? And I thought that was a really beautiful film. Uh, I'd love to hear a little bit about that film. Cause It's on Amazon Prime for anybody who wants to check it out. Uh, I think it's excellent work and it really shows the kind of chops that you didn't have a chance to show in Star Trek.
0: That's since the end of Star Trek. That's what I've really been looking for. Yeah. This gentleman, he he couldn't get, he tried to get Michael Caine (laughs) and he tried to get the American actor who was in Godfather uh, who played the, the uh, senior, senor senor, senior. Robert um, Duvall. Yeah, Robert Duvall. They kind of get those two i don't feel it an insult to lose to either of those guys (laughs) but they had both given it up they had both retired so i was his third choice then in this case being third is pretty good you know like i said because it was um he didn't have to pay me as much but on the other hand i got to do a role that was kind of fun and i was i was there a couple of days um and he just he just knew me by my work got a hold of me through my agent and uh, I went I went there and the two people that I worked with a little girl and the, the other gentleman were both great We were both fun to work with it was a, it was a very nice pleasant entertaining couple of days so that I'm surprised anybody uh, uh, would bring that up in a conversation but um, I I definitely enjoyed that and and there were other experiences like that that were modest um uh, um modest uh, they had modest objectives uh as as films but that uh, were were enjoyable doing um yeah so uh, in fact you know i've been asked on a couple of occasions how desperate were you to be check off to go ahead and do those independent projects that were you know most of them were, one was his, was a half a million bucks uh, uh, production. Um, one was my screenplay that I wrote that had nothing to do with Star Trek called Inalienable, which
1: should have had a better fate, I think. And that was the one with uh, Marina Sirtis, right?
0: Yeah, Marina was terrific. Yeah. She was wonderful. I, I was so pleased that she was willing to participate. And there was actually a lot of people from Star Trek involved in inalienable supporting actors my uh, my 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 wife had an important part. My son had an important part that was a lot of fun. The woman who played the lead is now my agent <laughs> but it never got released. It never got released because of insurance uh, problems uh, there was supposed to be an insurance payment made um, that was never made and the picture was, was therefore not uh, not considered uh, available to the public. I don't know. Anyway, um, yeah, the things that I did after Star Trek, were, uh, with, no, with no exceptions, had one thing going for them. I got, to, I got to work, not just to be there. I got to work. Even Martin Danzig. That was a short 12-minute film. But I got to, I got to perform. I got to, to, to do what I was supposed to do. So, someone recently said to me, "You definitely were born to be what you are, to be an actor," and got that from from my reading my autobiography. I think not from watching my talent on screen. So, um, yes, yeah, so when I look back, I have, I, I'm really, a, a, I'm really on the uh, the deep end. <laughs> of my life now. Um, I have no idea how much time I have left. I have nothing pressing at, at the moment <laughs> to, to, to bid me adieu. But um, 84, that's, 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 pretty, uh, that's pretty old. So um, I look back, and for the most part, I think, I, I, got a, I got a pretty good shot. I had a pretty good time. Yeah, disappointments, disillusionments, anger, all those things were present, you know, all those things I, I uh, experienced. But um, if, that's, if this is it, and I don't see anything in the f- future, but then remember, I didn't see anything beyond uh, uh, the third season of Star Trek either, you know, the TV series. But if this is it, uh, I, I'll, I'll go kicking and fighting, but I'll still feel that it's been a worthwhile adventure.
1: Yeah, you know, this comes up a bunch of times on this podcast. Uh, You know, I did a documentary about my uncle a few years ago, who was an artist in New York. Uh He passed away a few years ago. And, uh, you know, he was, lived in, for the most part, kind of obscurity as the artist. And it wasn't until after he passed away that suddenly his popularity really started to pick up. And, uh, mm. you know, for him, a lot of his quest had been to just be taken seriously, to be recognized for what he did. And it sounds like this is kind of what you're going through and what you've kind of the realization you've come to at this point in your life is... You know that feeling of recognition, and uh, I, I guess more than just recognition, that feeling that people see what you've accomplished.
0: Well, you know, now I'm going to contradict myself in the process of contradicting you. <laughs> I I feel that the uh, that the audience that watched me work are far um, far disproportionately enthusiastic than uh, than I deserve. Um, that's because they loved Star Trek and I was part of it, regardless if I was just holding on to its coattails. So I, 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 I think I'm past the part where I get a little embarrassed, but there was a time when I'd step on the stage at a, you know, at a convention or some public event and be a little embarrassed because the enthusiasm was so strong. Uh, way more than what I contributed to this show, so in that in that sense, I feel uh, that I, it's I have been disproportionately well received. What 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 bothers me is that I think I I I, I could have done better if I had given, been given the opportunity. So maybe I'm being a little greedy, but. I don't want to be applauded for I I captain. That's kind of embarrassing. Uh, so when I did have you know like Star Trek four, a couple of moments in Star Trek two, that you know I, I had a, a chance to sh- show some some talent. I, I you know I I, I embrace that more than I embraced the general uh, avalanche of enthusiasm that comes with just being part of of that entity.
1: So Walter, if you could travel back in time and see yourself back in the 60s, what advice would you tell yourself? Or what do you know today that you wish you could tell younger Walter?
0: See, the problem with that question is is, is the assumption that I would do it differently. But I know who I am. I know what my personality is. I know my um, ego defects. I, I, the things that I remember in greater detail are the disappointments rather than the minor triumphs. And so the, the thing is that I would probably do everything the same way, unless you were to reconstruct me. You know, start at zero base and make Walter Koenig somebody other than who, who I am. I'm I, i've been lucky i've had a good 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 run i've had good times i've been i've been appreciated uh, on, on on several occasions i can that i don't think any of that would have made a difference uh, I, I, to walter Koenig in, in the 1960s if i was to go back and say look there will be nice good things that happen there will will be a, a sense of That you have not lived this life in vain. You don't have to stress so much. You don't have to feel this, this sense of inadequacy. I could tell myself that and I would still do the things the same way. Uh, I know that now. So there's no, there's no purpose to, uh, to wonder, uh, if I could have advised myself to be a healthier uh, uh, person, a more emotionally stable person than
1: I am. That's a great answer. Very introspective answer. So Walter, you know, as we wrap up this interview here, we've talked a lot about some very introspective things about yourself. And I want to thank you again for all your honesty and openness to talk about these topics. Looking back on your career and your life, what do you want your ultimate legacy to be? How how do you want Walter Canning to be seen?
0: Well, it's kind of wish (laughs) fulfillment. <laughs> because I, I I didn't necessarily pursue life's course uh, in, in in those terms, but um, I would like to be I would like people to ignore the, the the neurotic side that I have manifested from time to time, and think of me uh, most lovingly as a uh, as a, um, a respected professional who. Um, performed uh, up to his abilities when the when the challenge was presented and that uh, I like people I appreciate their support uh, I, I'm grateful for the opportunity to be involved in a phenomenon that i I respect and, and if I have to re, be uh, remembered uh, for one particular um, entity, it would be Star Trek, because Star Trek spoke to us about a better world and uh, and and supported the philosophy where we all were able to get along together.
1: Well, any true fan out there who loves Star Trek also knows to, to go beyond Star Trek. And I want to thank you for all of your work that you did, of course, on that series, but as well, just everything you've done beyond the Enterprise. I acknowledge you for your contributions to entertainment. Uh, you know, I wish I could have seen you and Mark perform. That would have been amazing. I know. Uh, yeah. So you know, again, thank you so much for everything that you have achieved in your in your career. And I know there's still more ahead, right?
0: <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? <laughs> right now, I just I'm 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 uh, recovering from two spinal surgeries, um, and I'm walking without a limp. So that's a uh, so that's improvement after a year and a half. Um, so yeah, I'm
1: still. Oh, I'm still still around. That's good. That's good to hear. I hope I get to meet you one day at a convention. And uh, yeah, again, thank you so much for chatting. I mean, this is like one of those surreal moments in my time doing this podcast where I get to talk to Walter Koenig. This is gonna be one of those times I don't ever forget. So, uh, you know, thank you for your generosity today. Just being able to chat with you is... Mind blowing. Uh, I don't know how I'm gonna. I'm just rambling right now because I'm just so mind blown. So again, thank you so much for all of this. Uh, and again, folks, the book is beaming up and getting off. It's by Jacobs Brown Press, so we're gonna have links to that in the show notes. So do make sure you pick up a copy of that because there's obviously so much more we didn't discuss, and I want you to read it to get the whole picture, get the entire story of who Walter Caning is, and all the really amazing things he's gone through and that he's accomplished. So Walter, again, from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much. Uh, be healthy, be well, and be safe, and of course, live long and prosper. And that was our chat with Walter Canning, and I will never have words to express just how grateful I was to have this uninterrupted time to chat with him. He's an artist who in some ways never got his full chance to shine due to being a part of the Star Trek universe, but I admire the fact that at this point in his life he isn't bitter about it and has discovered new avenues to express himself, and ultimately learned to love himself for what he has accomplished. That's a pretty powerful lesson in there too, and I hope you walked away with some ideas like that for yourself. Just a reminder once more, check out Walter's memoirs from Jacobs Brown Press Beaming up and getting off life before and beyond Star Trek. We'll have links for that in the show notes for this week's episode. Now, we didn't chat a ton about Star Trek TV episodes today, but since we did mention Spectre of a Gun, I'd like to spend a little bit more time chatting about that one. This is one of three Star Trek episodes that took place in a Western style action movie setting. TNG would do it next in the season 6 episode, A Fistful of Datas, and Enterprise would follow it some years later with the episode North Star. If you might recall, this episode had a pretty unique looking set and that's because it was originally intended to be filmed on location in an outdoor western town. However, due to budget issues, they were unable to make that happen, and instead went with a surreal approach that I think makes it more interesting and very much more a Star Trek kind of thing. The working title for the episode was The Last Gunfight, and while the title changed, the episode did in fact air one day before the 87th anniversary of the actual gunfight at the OK Corral. How's that for timing? so that wraps up this week's episode of trek untold thank you so much for checking it out this week please make sure that you're following us on instagram twitter and facebook all at trek untold that's one word no spaces at trek untold it's the best way to get updates on guests check out all the memes and other things that we're posting and interact with myself and other star Trek fans if you'd like to support this podcast go ahead and check out patreon.com trekuntold and become a subscriber to the show or check out teespring.com slash stores slash Trek Untold to check out some of our merchandise. If you've been enjoying Trek Untold, please leave us a rating and review on iTunes or wherever you're listening to podcasts. And if you're on YouTube, please give the video a thumbs up and subscribe to our channel, youtube.com slash Today. Leaving ratings, reviews, and comments are things that all help this podcast grow, and they'll cost you nothing but a few seconds of your time. Doing things like that, or even telling your friends or other Star Trek fans about the stuff you've heard on the show and making sure they know about us, are huge helps to keeping Trek Untold growing. Thank you once again to our sponsor, Triple Fiction Productions. Go ahead and check them out at triple-fictionproductions.net. If you'd like to send us some feedback about this episode, suggest a guest, or ask to be booked on the show, go ahead and send me an email at trekuntold at gmail.com. And of course, thanks to listeners like you for choosing Trek Untold and making it your weekly Star Trek podcast. This has been Trek Untold. I'm Matthew Kaplowitz. And until next time, fortune favors the bold.
3: Trek Untold is sponsored by treksphere.com. Promoting fan-produced Star Trek content in all forms. Is powered by the Rageworks Podcasting Network and is affiliated with Nerd News Today.